Hey, good morning, Lake Merced and whoever else might be out there joining us on the interwebs, wherever you might be. Uh, we are so glad that you are here with us today. Uh, you know, 10 weeks ago, we began this whole shelter in place thing and all this live streaming that we've been doing. And it's become something of a new normal for us. And at the time, that first week, I mentioned that, that we had found ourselves in very peculiar times. At that time, I didn't think it could get any more peculiar, any more chaotic, and any more anxiety-inducing than it was. That week, 10 weeks ago, in my mind, was undoubtedly the beginning of probably the, the tensest, weirdest, and hardest season that I thought I might ever encounter in my entire lifetime. Like, we're, we're living through history. Something we were all saying, and we were, but we had no idea what was to come. I mean, I'm here to tell you this last week was was not just peculiar. This last week was tragic. The, the writer of Proverbs says that the path of righteous or path of the righteous is like the morning sun shining ever brighter till full light of day. But verse 19 says, but the, but the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know what makes them stumble. And, and so to experience this week in, in so many ways uh, was to experience deep darkness. And, and yet the words of the Gospel of John ring true. That the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And so church, that, that is our promise as we begin this morning, that, that we live in a world and we live in a time that is full of darkness, but the darkness cannot overcome the light. Darkness never overcomes the light. If you, if you put the smallest light in the darkest cavern, the light will always win. And that is not only our hope, that is our truth this morning as we begin and so I want to invite you to join me with a word of prayer. Let's, let's talk to God for a moment. Father, you have seen every thought of mankind throughout the entire uh, globe this week. You have seen those who have been a hurt and, uh, and, and oppressed. You have seen those who are doing the hurting and doing the oppressing. You have seen looters and you have seen honest people. You have seen the depths of all of our hearts. Father, and I know you love us the same. But right now, we are a people who are hurting. We are a people in anguish. We are a people who are overwhelmed by, by the sheer magnitude of all that is broken right now in this world. And this morning, as we stop and we still ourselves to be in your presence, Lord, we ask that you would be here. We ask that your Holy Spirit would be with us, that you would speak through me and give us ears to hear the truth of your Holy Word. Father, change us this morning. Help us to change, to be a little bit more like Jesus in all that we do. We want to be like you. We want to give ourselves to you. And we want to praise your holy name. You are worthy of our praise. And we glorify you today. Help us to rest in you. Help us to give all of this over to you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> you know, this week we are we're continuing in our sermon series called Captive. And the series has been designed to look at the intersection between God's people of Judah 2,600 years ago 
a people who are exiled, a people who are removed from their own homes and placed in captivity in a foreign land, and our reality, again, as a people of God who are exiled to our homes, who are held captive in our living rooms, held captive in our bedrooms, held captive in our backyards. And that even intensified this week as a lot of us had to deal with, with things like uh, a curfew, right? It's, it's something that we all have to deal with a little bit. And so when I sat down to plan this series, I really only anticipated dealing with the reality of a global pandemic and how that affects us as the church. And yet we find ourselves now in an epidemic of racism and violence and in some cases tyranny within a pandemic. And I find it so strange, even though I know strange isn't the right word here, that my plan to explore Daniel for this series has aligned with our world today. Because Daniel was only supposed to represent life in exile. Like, like what was it like to live as exiled people? obedient to those who, who put us there and yet still faithful to God. That was the only question I really wanted to explore, but never in my wildest dreams. And, and dreams are kind of the theme of the day as we talk about Daniel chapter two. Never in my wildest dreams that I ever imagined that Daniel's central theme would engage our reality so perfectly. I mean, this is not an opportunistic text, but man, oh man, is it timely. And so last week as we, we began looking at the book of Daniel, we were introduced to four Jewish men. They were the best of the best of the best. And they're living in exile in Babylon. And they're selected from among many to be educated and to be trained in the ways of the empire, the ways of Babylon, so that at the end of the three years, they might serve under the, the, the foreign king, under King Nebuchadnezzar. And so the story starts off innocent enough. And yet by the time we get to verse 7, the empire begins to intervene. First with name changes from good Jewish names to Babylonian names, reflecting Babylonian gods. And it continues until these, these four men eventually put up boundaries. Where, where they're invited to, to eat meat from the king's table and they, they say, no, we don't want to do that. It's, it's something that we discussed last week. And it was likely the result of holy Jewish men trying to practice purity by not eating meats sacrificed to other gods. And so as the chapter ends, Daniel chapter 1, three years have elapsed now, and the four men, Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, otherwise known as Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're more popular names, they've now entered into the king's service. They've finished they're three years. And the king looks at them and examines them. And he says, these guys are 10 times better than all the others in the kingdom. And so that's Daniel chapter one. And as we spoke about it last week, we spoke about the tension that exists or existed within their lives. The tension between loyalty and subversion. In other words, their job was to be loyal to the king, loyal to the kingdom. But there were limits to their loyalty. There were times when their faith, not just encouraged, but demanded that they be subversive to Babylon, that they undermine the power and the authority of the empire. Like that was their reality. It, it was a call for them to live within, but not live with sin. That's what we talked about last week. Live within, but not living with sin. Live within the, the, the rules and, and the authority of the empire, but, but not when it leads people of God into a place of sin. 
Like at sin, there's a line that should not be crossed. And so they put up that line and everything worked out. Everything worked out until it didn't. And, and that's really where we begin today's message. It's that, it's that moment where everything stops working out. And I'm just curious, like, have you ever been confronted with an authority in your life? Someone who, who called on you to do something that you felt or that you knew was wrong. And yet, this is a person who is an authority to you. And so you were stuck in the tension between those two worlds. Do I listen to authority or do I, knew, do, I do what I know is right? It makes me think a little bit of the Houston Astros. I don't know if you're much of a baseball fan like I am, but, but it, it feels like a lifetime ago that they were, were dealing with all their own controversy, but it was really just a few months ago that all this was going on. But the truth came out about the last several years of baseball that they had been playing. And so, and one of those years included a World Series title. And so what was discovered is that one or two individuals within the Houston Astros organization had devised a plan. That plan was to gain an advantage to win games. Their advantage was that they could watch the television in the tunnel off the dugout and they could see the signs that the catcher was putting down. And depending on what the upcoming pitch was or what it was going to be, they'd take a baseball bat in the tunnel and they'd bang a trash can that the batter could hear while he's up at the plate. And so if there was a bang, that meant that there was one kind of pitch that was coming. And if there wasn't a bang, that meant that there was some other kind of pitch that was coming. But I'm, I'm, as someone who used to play baseball a little bit, I mean, that information right there is, is really, really valuable. That's information that'll give you an incredible advantage that other teams who are playing against you don't get because they don't get to know what kinds of pitches are coming at them. And so there's a world of difference in your timing between hitting something coming at you at 97 miles per hour and something coming at you hitting 75 miles an hour. You can do a lot with that kind of information. And that's exactly what they did. But that's not the most devastating thing. The, the most devastating part of all of this, I think, was not that one or two guys had an idea, but that dozens upon dozens of people knew about it and they didn't stand up for what was right. They, they participated in it or they turned a blind eye to it. Whatever it was, they chose the path of silence. And man, as we've learned, silence about injustice is a recipe for combustion. Like it is going to blow up in your face eventually. And so some of you have experienced that reality or at least some reality like it. And it's that reality that sets the stage for Daniel chapter two and Daniel chapter three, which is where we're gonna be this week. Now for the sake of time, I'm not gonna be reading Daniel chapter two, but Daniel two in a nutshell is about a dream. I mentioned that a few moments ago. King Nebuchadnezzar has had a dream. And this isn't just any dream, but it's one of those dreams that sticks with you. Like one of those dreams that you never forget. One of those dreams that you only have two or three of those in your lifetime. And he knows that this dream means something. And so he sets out on a quest. I, I have to figure this out. And so he calls in all his magicians and he calls his, his enchanters and he calls in his astrologers. And he gives them each instructions. He basically says, hey, I want you guys to tell me what my dream meant. But there's a catch. I'm not going to tell you what my dream was. And if you don't get it right, I'm going to kill you. I mean, 
put yourself in their shoes. Like, how would you feel if someone said that to you? So they're panicked, right? Understandably so. And they reply back. They're like, there isn't a man on earth who can do what the king is asking. And so what does the king do? Man, he's Nebuchadnezzar. He just gets mad. And he has them killed anyway, right there on the spot. They're done with. Like, that's the kind of volatile leader that King Nebuchadnezzar is at this point in his life. Uh, one commentator described him with a, a multitude of terms. They said he was haunted, fearful, peremptory, tyrannical, violent, suspicious, unreasonable, malevolent, irascible. I don't even know what irascible means. That's not part of my, my vocabulary. But he said this was a man of extreme emotions and actions. Like that's who we're dealing with in Daniel's story. And one man, Daniel, is about to step up to, the, up to the plate and volunteer to interpret that dream. He's volunteering. And all he's asking for is, hey, just give me a little bit of time. I'm going I'm to hear you. I'm going to go away. Give me a little bit of time and I'll come back. I mean, like think about this. This is so risky, so dangerous. And he goes back to his friends and he pleads with them. He says, guys, ask God for mercy so that, that we aren't executed if I get this wrong. I mean, this is extremely risky. And what does God do? Man, God delivers. Because soon after, Daniel goes back to the king. And the king asks him, he says, are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? And, and Daniel hears him and he says, look, no wise man, no enchanter, no magician or, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery that he has asked about. But there is a God in heaven, a God who reveals mysteries, and he has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. And so as Daniel continues to speak, he, he tells about a dream, a dream of an enormous, dazzling statue. The head of the statue was pure gold. The, the chest and arms were made of silver. The, the belly and thighs were made of bronze. He said the legs were iron and the feet, well, the, the feet were, were partly made of clay. And so as Daniel begins to explain how each of these, these precious metals depict a different kingdom of the earth, uh, what each kingdom is, is, is a mystery, except for Babylon. Babylon, we're told, is the head of gold. And Daniel's descriptions conclude with the fourth kingdom a kingdom that we're told that, that smashes everything. But it's a kingdom with clay feet. And so it's not just strong, but it's also brittle. It's also fragile. And so the text says, and, and just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. Now, if you wanted to invent a narrative here, if, if you wanted to speculate about who that nation is, who that empire is that Daniel's talking about, man, there's a lot of creative license right here that one person can take. I mean, some people, you read commentators, some people are convinced that it's the Greek empire. Others are convinced that this is the Roman empire. Still others you read are, are convinced that this, this likely has some, some relationship to, to the United States. And so I don't want to get caught up in all that identifying which kingdom it is. So here's my response. I think the text leaves this ambiguous on purpose. In other words, we're not to try to force any empire into that mold. But I also don't want us to be quick to disregard it. 
Don't try to force anything in there, but don't disregard it. And so as Nebuchadnezzar hears Daniel's message for him, like he's, he's beside himself with praise. <laughs> the text says that the king of Babylon, this, this outrageous guy, falls prostrate before Daniel and he says, surely your God is the God of gods. Surely your God is the Lord of kings. And he's a revealer of mysteries for you. Nobody else, you were able to reveal this mystery. And he was so impressed that he promoted Daniel and he promoted the three others to high positions. I mean, this is all going amazing for them. Until chapter 3. Because in chapter 3, man, stuff hits the proverbial fan. Because here, Nebuchadnezzar does something striking. He makes a 90-foot tall image of gold and he calls everyone in the land. And I mean everyone. He says, I want you to assemble. And then he begins to tell them this. And this is beginning in verse 5 in Daniel chapter uh, 3. It says, As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipe, as soon as you hear all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And he says in verse 6, Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Basically, he says, this is the image and this is the song that you are to honor me by. And not doing so is not an option. This is the law and you will obey it or you will die. You know, I was thinking about that, man. Like it brings to mind images of Tiananmen Square in China. This is actually the anniversary of that. It's 31 years ago today. That moment where the Chinese government killed hundreds or even thousands of their own people for not obeying the, the words and the law of the empire. And so last week, you know, we, we spoke about the tension between patriotism and nationalism. Well, the biblical scholar Walter Brueggemann he calls this totalism. In other words, you better embrace the totality of the empire or else. And as everyone came and did exactly what they were told, some astrologers came and they began to whisper in the king's ear. They said, beginning in verse 10, you know, your majesty kind of issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horde and horn and flute and zither and lyre and harp and pipe and all kinds of music. He said, you, got, you told them they have to fall down and worship the image of God. And that whoever doesn't fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. He's like, but I'm here to tell you there are some Jews whom you've set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you. They pay no attention. They, they neither serve your gods, nor do they worship the image of gold that you have set up. Now, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, they may be serving. They may be living within, as we talked about last week. But here in this moment, they are not embracing the totalism of the empire, the totalism of Babylon. And so our, our volatile, emotional friend, King Nebuchadnezzar, 
and he's about to spring forth. So the text says he gets enraged. And he says, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, he's talking to the three men. He says, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. And then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? And guys, it's, it's right here that our friends once again draw a line in the sand just like last week and they say, this far and no farther. They said, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And He will deliver us from Your Majesty's hand. But even if He does not, we want you to know, Your Majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. Guys, when you, when you read this, like this is the ultimate form of subversion. And it is direct, and it is right here to the king's face. They're saying like, once again, king, we will not defile ourselves to serve the empire why? Because we serve one master. We serve the one true God. And man, at this time, Nebuchadnezzar is so angry, so infuriated by what they have to say, by their refusal to obey him, that he vows in that moment to dominate them and to destroy them. And so the text says that he ordered the furnace, not just to be heated, but to be heated seven times hotter than normal. And he commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. The text says the king's command was so urgent and the furnace was so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace furnace if you know this story at all and there's a good chance you do what happens next obviously doesn't surprise you right because the king looks in the fire and he sees four men now unharmed and walking around in the fire and he knows he only threw three men in there but he's looking at four in there right now and as he yelled for the men to come out from where they are, there's this beautiful moment of, of humility that comes forth from this raging, tyrannical king where he says, man, praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and they defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. And so he says in verse 29, Therefore I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble for no other god can save in this way. And I want you just right here 
for just a moment to stop and, and to let this, these words sink in just a little bit. You know, it's, it's easy to do. And we often do get caught up in the miracles of, or the miracle of all that's happening right here. That, that three men who were supposed to be burned alive escaped, unscathed. Like that shows something. I recognize that. That shows God's incredible power. But before we get to any of that, we are compelled by this image and this vision of men who are once again resolved not to defile themselves before God by bowing to the empire. And so friends, that is the central theme of Daniel's text. That is what it means to live within, but not live with sin. It's that commitment and that conviction not to defile themselves that invites the power of God into this moment. Brueggemann defines the word defile this way. He says defile means unclean, impure, profane, and therefore unable to make contact with God. I want you to think about this. Why did God rescue them? Why did God have their back right in this moment? I think it's because when they were confronted with which master they would serve, they chose to put their hope and their well-being not in the hands of the ruler right in front of them, not in the empire that they lived in, but in the hands of an almighty God. Guys, defilement is still at the core of this story. And these are three men or four men who are resolved not to defile themselves. And so it's that theme that I want to grab onto here for just a moment because you have to be mindful of who these men are. These are faithful men. These are practicing Jewish men. These are men of Leviticus. They're men of that book of the Bible that we all like to pretend isn't there because it's so repetitive and so boring and so confusing and so weird and just hard to read. And yet it's there and it's profound. Like it's an entire book on how not to defile oneself, on how to be pure, on how to be holy. You look at Leviticus 19, like before God ever says anything about loving one's neighbor as oneself, right? The second greatest commandment in scripture, before he talks about that at all, in verse 34, the chapter of Leviticus 19 begins with God's very first words to his nation of people. And what does he say in this moment? He says, be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. In other words, he says, be a peculiar people. Be, a, be set apart people. Be holy, because I am holy. That's what all the food laws, that's what all the cleanliness laws were all about. They're about holiness, God-like holiness. But as the time goes on, and, and, and purity, and, and commitment to, to cleanliness, and law obedience, all that stuff, as time goes on, that, that itself becomes an idol. And by the time Jesus walks on the earth 600 years later, he begins to look at these Jewish men who are, who are following him. And he says in verse 7, he says, Are you so dull? <laughs> Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach 
and then out of their body. He says, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. Jesus says all these evils come from inside and they defile a person. Jesus basically says, you you guys have taken these good laws about holiness and you've made them about something else. It's not what you consume that defiles you. It's what you produce. It's the fruit in your life. If what comes out of you is sexual immorality and theft and murder and adultery and greed and malice and deceit and lewdness and envy and slander and arrogance and folly, he says, that is what has defiled you. That's what tears you down. That's what separates you from the love of God, not the way you wash your hands. And so when you go back and you look at Daniel and and, and these three other men before Nebuchadnezzar, it was never ever about the food first and foremost. That the food that they ate was reflecting something about their faithfulness. That it was a commitment not to give in to everything in the world around them, but to set some some part of themselves aside for the glory and the presence of God in their lives. They wanted God. They wanted God. And these men were willing to deny themselves of something the flesh craves so that they could put their faith and they could put their well-being not in the king's table, but in the hands of God. You know, when they're in the furnace, they put their faith and their well-being not in the king's laws, but in the hands of God. Jesus' objection with his disciples is about them putting their faith in themselves, in their own ability to obey laws, rather than in the hands of God. Like, do you see the difference? And that's, that's why I now understand why the practice of Sabbath is so important in this conversation to Brueggemann when I was reading him this week. Because it's the practice of Sabbath rest that brings us into the holy presence of God. You know, according to Leviticus, that's what Sabbath rest is. It's about self-denial to be in God's presence, to spend time with him, to, to love him. Sabbath is not about what I do. It's not about what I accomplish. In fact, it's the exact opposite of that. Sabbath is about discipline to accomplish nothing. Nothing except the stillness with God. And so when you look at Daniel, man, Daniel chapter 1, 2, and 3 is about four men. Four men who are resolved to do nothing but put their faith and their trust in God. Even when the empire is closing in, even if it costs them their lives, they will not defile themselves by replacing God's space in their lives with empire. And so the question that emerges from that reality is what does that mean for us as Christians here in 2020? Is our faith in Christ any less concerned with defilement and holiness? 
And I hope the answer is obvious. The answer is no. Guys, that is part of our baptismal identity as people of God. In other words, when we are baptized into Jesus, we are baptized in a new life. And it means that anything from our old life, including our own place within empires of our day, is to be put to death within us so that God can set up shop in us and live. And so you look at Colossians chapter 3, Paul's writing to the church in Colossae, and he says it far better than I ever could. And so I'm going to read his words directly there. And this is what he says. He says, since then, you have been raised with Christ. He says, since then, set your heart on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And so verse 5 says, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, he says, all of this is idolatry. And so because of these, he says, the wrath of God is coming. He says, you used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now, now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these. Get rid of anger and rage and malice and slander and filthy language from your lips. Don't lie to each other since you've taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Because here he says, there is no Gentile or Jew. There is no circumcised or uncircumcised. There is no barbarian or Scythian or slave or free, but Christ is all, he says, and is in all. And so in verse 12, he begins to conclude. He says, therefore... As God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, and bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love. Love which binds them all together in perfect unity. And it's right here at the end of what we just read that I think informs our reality as Christians in a global pandemic and in a nation of, of civil and racial unrest. That as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. We are called to clothe ourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, and to bear with each other and forgive. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And that, I think, is where Brueggemann has really hit the nail on the head. Because for him, he says, forgiveness is the single greatest differentiator between the tension of our lives as people in this world, but not of this world, or as people in an empire, but not of empire. He says, in the Babylonian empire, 
Nobody is ever forgiven for anything. Forgiveness is not and never will be a thing of this world. Forgiveness is found only in the person of God. And man, if you don't believe me, go check social media. Go check the headlines. There is very little forgiveness that is sought, and there is very little forgiveness that is offered. Does that mean that the, that the people who are hurt and angry in our world today shouldn't be? No, not at all. There's a lot of anger right now that is justified in our world, like a lot. But the only way to break free and to break through is not as a people of this world, but as a people who belong to the kingdom of God. People who are resolved not to defile themselves. People who, who are resolved not to replace the God space in their lives with things of this world. Guys, it is when we embrace the peculiarity of our place as people, people who are set apart from the world, yet living within it, that we can finally clothe ourselves with the holiness of God. People who are clothed with compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. People who can bear with each other and forgive. Why? Because God forgave you and he forgave me. And I don't have to be part of all the stuff going on around me anymore. I can be in it and I can seek the, the peace and the prosperity of the land, but I don't have to be of it. And neither do you. Because we are people of God. And that is where we put our faith. That is where we are resolved not to be defiled. Because the, the, the path to holiness was paved with forgiveness. If there was like a sermon in a sentence right there, one, one basic line that I hope you take from this entire message today, it's that. The path to holiness was paved with forgiveness. Guys, in Christ, we are a holy people because we are a forgiven people. And in Christ, we are a forgiving people because we are a holy people. We are God's people. And that means that whatever trials we face in this life, we don't bow to them. That when the furnace rages hot and when everything around us is in utter chaos and in total unrest, we clothe ourselves with compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. That is the way of a holy people. The path to holiness was paved with forgiveness and so friends, I want to invite you, I want to invite you to step out of all the stress, all the things that are engulfing our lives right now and step into the forgiveness of God. Like I, I know these are dark times and I know there's a lot of things to be tempted to be worried about and to be angry about. But John chapter one reminds us that in the midst of a dark world, Jesus came into it as the true light and he gave light to all mankind, so that while the world remains in darkness, believers in Jesus have true light. And John 3, 17 says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world. That's not why Jesus came. He came to save the world through him. And so whoever you are, wherever you are right now, I want you to know that God wants to save you. 
God wants to rescue you. He wants to give you light in all the dark places that surround. And I want to invite you into that this morning. If you are ready to leave this world and you are ready to leave its troubles behind, then I want to invite you to receive Jesus today. It starts with one simple email. You can send an email to questions at lakemercedchurch.com and we will walk you through what it means or what it looks like to receive Jesus into your life. It starts with forgiveness. Jesus forgives. And so the path to holiness was paved with forgiveness. Friends, that's our prayer for you. Our prayer is that you will leave this world behind and that you will seek that path because Jesus promises that anyone who seeks will find him if you seek with your whole heart. Friends, wherever you are, seek him with your whole heart. Write that email to us with your whole heart. I pray that you will. And if you will, man, Jesus forgives. God bless you this week, friends. I hope that encourages you. I hope you can be blessed this week, wherever you go, wherever God sends you. I'll see you next week.